Welcome to Founders and Friends with Scott Orn of Cruise Consulting. And before we get to an excellent podcast, Will Hawthorne of Code Advisors, that's, this is a really good podcast, folks. I wanted to just give a couple shout outs. First, Cruise Consulting. We are the number one startup accounting firm in the country. We now have an office in New York. We have 22 people and we're growing really fast and we'd love to work with your company or your friend's company. So if you need help on anything from monthly accounting to finance to even HR questions, especially taxes, because tax day is coming up for companies on September 15th, give us a call. We also do R&D tax credits. And that's a nice little segue to a shout out to Gusto, who's doing a great job processing, basically submitting to the IRS the R&D tax credits. We prepare them. We do a bunch of work for the clients. We figure out how much the credit's for, and then we give it to Gusto, and Gusto's doing a great job on those submissions. So thanks, Gusto. All right, that's it. Let's get to Will Hawthorne at Code Advisors. Welcome to Founders and Friends Podcast with Scott Orne at Cruise Consulting. My very special guest today is Will Hawthorne from Code Advisors. Welcome, Will. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yeah. So Will and I are old friends. I actually used to work for Will, so I had many of late nights at uh, J.P. Morgan, Hamburg and Quist, uh, sitting in his office. You were you were just a young, fresh associate at the time. I was an analyst. <laughs> I miss those days. It yes. was a lot of fun. You, you were great to work with. Did, and you, like to, the did team. you ever have like a, a putter in your office or something? I kind of oh yeah, always have a putter. Uh, so <laughs> Will now is a partner at Code Advisors, one of the top M and A people in the Valley for startups. He's a friend. We actually have um, used some of his materials to educate the cruise consulting client base about the importance of M&A, what to think about, what to worry about. And so we thought it'd be a great idea to have him on the podcast. Thanks again for having me. Excited about it. So tell the audience, kind of just retrace your career. Like how did you get to Code Advisors? What's your background? Sure. So right out of undergrad, I did accounting for two years, got my CPA, which was a good kind of financial background to get started with. I had the bug a little bit early for it to move to something a little more exciting and moved to DirecTV back in 95 when it was still a startup. So we had under a million subs. It was still owned by Hughes GM. And there I went into the finance group and was focused on the NFL contract, Major League Baseball, um, NBA. So really building out the sports franchise from the finance side. I had no idea you did that. That's amazing. The NFL is like help really make DirecTV, right? Because everyone wanted the package. Absolutely. It it absolutely did. People that didn't even want to watch the NFL or buy the package bought DirecTV because we had the NFL brand name. That contract was, you know, I think $450 million. Uh, And that was, you know, we weren't a large company at the time. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) It was like you sign it and you hope you can sell it. That's right. That was our biggest content play for sure. That's amazing. So you did you did DirecTV finance, mm-hmm. and then how did you get into investment banking? Sure. So at DirecTV, I worked with the CFO a lot, um, and he said, "Listen, your skill set and your uh, finance background, you might want to think about investment banking." And at the time, we worked with Goldman Sachs a lot, so he'd let me sit in those meetings. I decided to go back to school. I went to Kellogg uh, for grad school. I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. You know I'm Kellogg too, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so spent two years there. Um, spent the summer at J.P. Morgan in New York in the FIG group, so financial institutions covering banks and insurance. 
and obviously technology was getting pretty hot at the time. It was 2000, so transferred that offer from New York to San Francisco, came out to J.P. Morgan in 2000. I think that's when you and I met. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the time, our M&A group was combined with H&Q, um, was 53 people, and we went down to seven people over the course of three years. No, yes. really? That's Absolutely. crazy. Yeah, because yeah. we were 35. I remember our revenue per employee was something ridiculous, like $3 million per employee or something. Mm-hmm. Like some, The M&A group at H&Q was incredibly profitable. Yeah. But of course, that was like 1999, 2000, and the music stopped and everything changed. Absolutely. So you so you stayed, how long did you stay at J.P. Morgan for? For 11 years. Okay, wow. Yeah. And then what happened, how did the co-advisors appear? Sure. So uh, David Golden, uh, who yeah. was running TMT, uh, obviously H&Q alum, probably one of my favorite people in banking, was helping code get started. Um, so Quincy and Mike that founded the firm had been in and around banking, but were also operators. And so they kind of reached out to David and had David help them set up the firm. And so David reached out to me and said, hey, there's a few guys that I think are interesting, have a new unique angle on banking and, you know, start a dialogue from there. Yeah. David Golden, for folks, don't, he's like one of the most patient, nicest people you ever meet. And he's so patient. We used to nickname we were analysts, nickname Obi Wan Kenobi. I don't even think he knows that. <laughs> but we would always go against these like screaming investment bank people who were like thought they could like yell and scream their way into a better deal. And David and Paul Cleveland were both so patient that it, it never rattled them. And we were like always in awe of these two guys. So that's that's I didn't know that David helped you get there. That's absolutely awesome. yeah. yeah. Um, and so the idea really was I, I enjoyed J P Morgan. I, I still obviously have a lot of friendships there. At J.P. Morgan, I was running the Internet and Digital Media Group for M&A, partnering with Noah, who you know well. Yeah. But I was working with so many Internet companies, I was getting the bug of, hey, should I start something or should I go to a startup? Yeah. And in the end, after 11 years, my skill set really was M&A and you know, partially equity raises, but more M&A. And so code you know, was an opportunity to do both, which is to help go to a startup that was a bank, grow that company, but also use my skill set. Yeah. There's nothing... I mean, I, I, I agree with you 100%. Like, I never got the personal fulfillment in investment banking because it wasn't how that, I didn't have that sense of ownership in the right. same way that now you have that at Code Advisors. Like, yeah. you are a major partner in the firm. You know, you guys have a brand name, so your name's not on the door, but effectively your name's on the door. Everyone who comes in who's working with Will Hawthorne knows that you're someone who can get stuff done. So you have that sense of ownership, and I'm sure you love it. Yeah, it is fun. It's it's a much different feeling. At at J.P. Morgan, I think no matter how big of a year I had, it didn't really move the needle. And at Code, you can really move the needle. Everybody that you know we hire, I've interviewed or talked to or brought on board. So you do feel like you're building something. Um, The other thing that was interesting about Code is we do deal with smaller deals. And at J.P. Morgan. Well, I, I did enjoy the work. A lot of times when you're representing a public company, um, you're given a fairness opinion. You're not really negotiating the deal. Yeah. The CEOs, the CFOs, the boards are so experienced at M&A that they don't really need advice. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times you're getting a fairness opinion or an M&A print because you loan them money or there's a broader relationship. Uh, at the level we do it at Code, I, you know, our sweet spot's probably 100 to $500 million sell sides. And at that level, most of the founders have not done an M&A deal before. They have not raised money at $50 million or more. A lot of them don't even have CFOs. So you feel like they really need you, which is, which is good. And you match up with our client base so perfectly. And you know and we know that like, they're, they're really looking for advice from their trusted partners. Like They will 
listen, whether it's accounting or whether it's investment banking and doing an M&A deal, they are going to listen to every single thing you say. They're going to implement everything because yeah. it is their first time usually. And even if it's not their first time, usually they've had that experience of an investment banker helping them raise the value of the offer. And, you know, I, th- I think sometimes investment bankers get kind of a raw deal, but many, many times in my uh, experience, I've seen investment bankers like you come in and raise the purchase price 25 to 50% just by saying a few magic words and air, you know, giving like an air of legitimacy to a process and letting the buyers know that there's other people looking in a right. kind of an artful way. So I'm a huge fan of what you do. And I know this is not meant to be a commercial for code advisors, but you guys <laughs> are actually, are really are one of the best firms and we refer our clients to you you know, happily, like we know yeah. you're going to take care of them. Well, we appreciate you doing that. Um, a couple things there. So one back at you, cause a lot of the people out here are great at product. They're not great at finance. Um, and they don't pay attention to it until it's too late. Yeah. And we go into these companies many times. There is no CFO. People haven't given, kept track of things and the buyers care, right? They're going to roll you into a much bigger organization. They want to know that you have a handle on what's going on with your business financially, even if it is a pre-revenue company. Yeah. And so the service you guys provide, you obviously helped us out. We worked on a deal together. We won't go through the name of that company, <laughs> but it worked out really well. And uh, Cruz did a great job and prepared them and were able to handle all the due diligence, yeah. which is important. Yeah, thank you. Um, and that's really the credit. That client was Vanessa's client so, and Kevin Houck, so they deserve all the credit. I, I think I just looked looked pretty in a meeting. You did good. One uh, other thing. You, you did bring up a point that, it, listen, investment bankers' reputations are kind of well-deserved just over uh, the years on some things. I will say that I feel like every deal that I've been involved in, especially at Code, we more than pay for ourselves. Absolutely. So when the fee looks expensive... Yeah. But let's say you know investment bankers getting three million dollars on a fee. If they raise the price by ten million, which is not a big move, they paid for themselves three x. Right. So, you know, I, I do feel like we do that on almost every deal. Yeah, and I've seen it. Like I'm not not exaggerating. Twenty five to fifty percent. Like it's right. it it's a huge ROI. And we didn't really talk about like the higher probability of closing. Like I think that's something that people don't always understand. Like. Right. Most M&A deals actually never close. I mean, when I was working with you at H&Q and J.P. Morgan, I would maybe have 20% would close. And it was frustrating for me because I would do all this work and a lot of stuff never really happened and no one even knew that this stuff was going on. But working with a really good investment banker helps smooth out the edges, helps the communication. There's always a back channel. It's not just between two CEOs or a corporate development group and a CEO. There's someone who's experienced right there with the company who can translate what the requests are, what they mean, and help the deal really congeal. So I, I think it's it's not even about the dollar sometimes, it's about higher probability of close. Uh, I, I agree with you, that's yeah. well said. I think the other thing that is, has changed is back in 2004, five, six, when we were selling internet companies to a lot of media companies, they weren't really doing it for the team. They didn't understand how much the team meant. And the reason why you guys are successful and these companies around here are successful because there's a focus on the business. Yeah. It is the life for this founder or CEO. And, and so now when they're buying companies, they lock up the team, right? And so if you know you're going to go work for that company, you don't want to be on the front line negotiating the whole deal with them. So you're basically negotiating with your future boss yeah. and arguing with them over these points. And then you're going to go work there for four years. So that alone should want you to have somebody in the middle of these conversations. Yeah, you're totally right. And the acquisitions we're seeing are... 
there's always the financial exciting revenue opportunity component of it but you're right they're they're buying the teams just as much as they're buying the future revenue streams like they are buying these teams because they want the teams to to hire more aggressively and build out better products and then also bring that DNA to the rest of the organization. So it's not just like, it's not like a present value calculation of the future revenue. There are so many more intangibles involved and you're, you're totally right. Yep. Um, so a couple things we were going to cover, you had, you have a good slogan, why M and a is different. Like, yep. can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. So it's a, in our universe, we, we generally deal with high growth companies. That's, that's our sweet spot. And, um, the founders and the reason why these companies are growing like that, almost every founder I know, they're just good at getting things done. Uh, you tell them that can't be done, they do it. They just run through the wall and they get things done. And that's kind of the way they run their business. There are a lot of young, hard-charging people that I admire a lot. And M&A is completely different. You cannot force someone to buy you. Uh, raises are the same. You can't force someone to give you money to uh, your company. You want to be pursued. And it's very hard for founders that are action-orientated to let the process come to them. And you need a coach to say, back off. You don't need to email that person today or call them back today. <laughs> let them come to you. Pretend you have other things going on, which you do. Yeah. You're building a business. Uh, but they really want to force the M&A, and it's the number one mistake. As soon as buyers in our universe... Google, Facebook, Amazon, think you're selling and want to sell, they want to know why. Yeah. Now, if you have such a great company and you're so excited about it, why do you want to sell? Yep. So you have to pretend like you don't want to sell, and they're forcing you to sell through their actions. Mm-hmm. And it's really key. It's nuanced. And every day when you're talking to a founder on a deal, you need to coach them on what to do and what not to do. And people miss out on that stuff mm-hmm. when they try to do mm-hmm. it themselves. The other thing is, you may have one offer and you have this temptation to like go out to everyone else and demand an offer from, from another buyer, right? right? And you have to do that in a very artful way. And right. you can't be perceived as a CEO of shopping the company too much because it's exactly what you're talking about. The, the warning signals go up. But if, if you're the one doing it, you're A, not spending time on your business. So that could be going off the rails while you're in the middle of this. And B, you have this reputational you know, thing you have to work about, worry about. So that's another way investment bankers are really valuable because they have time and an incentive to go talk quietly to the right buyers and see if anyone else is interested. Yeah, that's right. And I think what I would tell um, founders are getting the offer, you're about 10% of the way there. Right? That a, first yeah. offer. That's a you're good, then going to yeah. negotiate that term sheet for probably three to four weeks. Yep. And then you're going to go into real due diligence. Yeah. And it can fall apart there at, at any point. Yeah, that's so true. And it, what are the points you see deals falling apart at? Like, what's causing that? Yeah. The biggest thing that we uh, advocate to our clients is to get the information out before you get the offer. So a lot of people are like, I'm going to show you a little bit, and then I want an offer. And then you're going to go into exclusivity with that party, so you've lost the rest of the process yeah. and the rest of the kind of checks and balances of other people being around, yep. and you're exclusive with that party for 60 days, and then they learn a bunch of stuff that you didn't tell them, and most of it's negative stuff. Yeah. And so clients are always asking me, should we tell them? Yes. Get it out in front, right? And that way you know it's incorporated in the offer. They know the good stuff, and they know the bad stuff. Every startup has issues. Yep. Um, and so you get it out in front, you make sure it's incorporated in that first offer, and therefore the deal doesn't go sideways mm-hmm. when you're locked up in exclusivity. Yeah, and you have multiple offers, ideally. Right. So you're not you're only going to exclusivity with the best buyer, 
and probably correct me if I'm wrong, but you have maybe instead of a 60 day exclusivity, you're getting a 30 day exclusivity. Right, absolutely. Some, you have some leverage on that because one of the worst things that can happen is it's not always bad for the exclusivity to run out, but if it does and that buyer who had the shot starts kind of talking trash you know, behind, the, behind your back, you may have a hard time bringing another buyer to the table. Yeah, the word spreads fast and yeah. it's very difficult to go convince people. Then they're gonna, in the back of their mind, as they do due diligence, they're like, well, why did that other party yeah. drop out? Yeah. So it yeah. makes it very difficult. Yeah, so M&A is different because you can't do it through sheer will. You actually have to have a process, you need to be pursued. That's, that's really good advice. Yeah. Uh, you had another, we were talking on the phone like two or three weeks ago when we were planning on doing this. You said there's there's kind of a phenomenon happening with the buyer market. Like, what's happening there? Sure. So, again, because some of our deals are smaller and the buyer universe has consolidated the, the buying power, right? If you look at uh, where Apple's market cap is in cash position or Google or Amazon. Amazon, I think, is like a $750 billion market cap company now. Crazy. Going to them and selling a $100 million company, there's not one company that I have in that range that is going to sink Amazon or Google if they don't get it. And so you're, you're already behind the eight ball because everything for them right now is a nice to have. Um, their businesses are so good um, and they have such great market share and they're all, you know, the names I'm talking about keep investing in their business. Um, so they're really making a decision. Can I build this myself over time or do these guys have something unique and do I want to buy it? Mm-hmm. Um, but none of them push the process. They won't play in auctions. They're not going to be the first to bid and say, oh, here, here's my Amazon bid. Go shop that to four other parties. Yeah, They've all sure. gotten smart. Yeah. Uh, Facebook, everyone. So it's much more difficult to get something done. Um, and, and it's just a process of sticking with it, giving them the right information, the right time, but not too much time. And then trying to bring the process together at you know at a head yeah. where all decision makers on the outside can make a decision around the same time frame. Yeah. And there those processes at Facebook, Amazon, all these companies you're talking about are run by like specialized teams, corporate development teams who have tons of deal experience. So they know that they can they can apply pressure at different points and try to spook out a founder who maybe needs to sell for the wrong reasons or maybe is willing to take uh, 50% less. They're doing a lot of testing through that process, right? That, that's right. So I would say at, at those companies that you're mentioning, most of their corp dev teams have more experience than almost every M&A yeah. banker on the street. They yeah. see more stuff. Yeah. They participate in more processes. Um, and so they know M&A and they know when you're overselling a process um, and, it, and it's difficult. Uh, you have the, very much a worthy adversary on the other side yeah. now. It used to not be that way, but now, for sure. Yeah. How do you how do you combat that as someone who's advising your client? Are you do you have certain kind of guidelines for your client to interact with the corporate development yeah. team, or how do you how do you do this? So, you know, the biggest thing is in this business, you have to tell the truth, right? You're building relationships, and I'm talking about right now the bank with yeah. all the buyers. That's the same of a founder starting a process. Mm-hmm. If you are caught early in a process saying, hey, I've got another bid, right? Yeah. So you, you call up Google and say, I have another bid. You need to move fast. And then four weeks later, you have nothing to hit them with, i.e. there is no offer. They sniff through that yeah. really quickly. Yeah. So starting a process and overselling it or with a 
you know, a white lie or whatever that is, you will get caught. Yeah. So the best thing is the truth. If you don't have anything, then you don't start an M&A process. What you start is a, hey, they want to get to know you better. They think you can work together on business development, not corporate development. Yeah, yeah. And you let them lean in. That's why we at Code, if someone comes to us and says, hey, we don't have any offers. We don't have anything really going. We just want to start a broad process. We won't do those kind of deals. Yeah. Um, and so you have to have something real to ignite the others. Yeah. Once you have something in hand, if you've built the right re- uh, relationships over time, if we call those companies and we say we have an offer, they believe us. Yeah. And if they have any interest, they'll go to work over those couple of weeks. All of them are so sophisticated and have such big teams. If they want something, they can move in weeks yeah. to come down, visit the company, or the company goes and visits them, get a full management presentation, and they'll tell you really yeah. quickly if it has legs or not. Yeah, and that's a great point because you have to maintain your credibility with them. You have this repeating game where you're talking to them probably once a week, you know? Absolutely. And I remember back in the day at H&Q, we'd have some clients who like wanted us to burn our own credibility, and we'd be like, are you crazy? Like they're going to see through it yep. and it doesn't help the company because once the buyer knows that games are being played, they start asking, are, are games being played in the revenue? Are games being played in the burn projections? Do I actually want to sign up to bring you into my corporate company and have be responsible for you hitting your numbers? So there's all this like kind of honesty and being forthright is so important because eventually you're going to become part of their company and they are going to be the person who signed that deal, who basically say, like, yes, let's do this. So their name's on it. Absolutely right. Yeah. Yep. How do you communicate with the business or the corporate development guys to get maybe, – maybe someone has an inbound offer, but they're not really – they don't really want to sell. Like, this happens a lot with our clients. They, they're, A, having a lot of fun because the, the really successful ones, like, things are really going well. VCs are throwing money at them. But they're kind of just curious. Like, do you have kind of the – a little soft bat phone that you call them on and say, hey, if this company was interested, what would be the range? Or how do you how do you handle that? Yeah. So so on those, you can't just be curious. Yeah. Once you turn mm. on that switch, the switch is on. That's a, and that's it's great really advice. hard to get away from it. Yeah. You, you know, and again, you can always put the pressure back on them to make it more serious before you explore it. But the, the answer always is, I'm not for sale. Yeah. I have this standalone path, and I appreciate the interest, but I'm not for sale. Yeah. If at some point you want to entertain it, then you can open up that dialogue a little bit by saying, oh, I might be interested. I have investors. I have other stakeholders, so I'm always willing to listen to something attractive because I have other people that have ownership in this company. So you play it that way, but leaning into a conversation, it's hard to pull back from those. So you should just, you shouldn't do it until you're ready to do it. And you know, the buyer's real. That's, that's really, that's great advice. Cause there's, I mean, you know, this, like the founders are often working on their companies for like five years before they even get to that point where it's even interesting to anybody. Right. And there is this like little germ of curiosity where they're like, I wonder, what, yeah. <laughs> and it helps you, it helps by fantasizing to like get through the day and build the company. Well, but yeah. you basically, you're saying like, Hey, you just got to keep your head down. You're not for sale until that moment when you are for sale. Uh, absolutely. I think if you look and I, I'm using Amazon example, yeah. cause I think they're really solid at their M&A strategy. They haven't done a ton, but what they've done has been yeah. really smart. Um, they probably get 150 inbounds a month, God. right, from companies that want to be yeah, sold to Amazon. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they prioritize it based on urgency. 
So if I call them and say, wink, wink, these guys might be for sale, they're going to be, well, I don't, I don't even have time. Yeah. I don't have time to look at that. Yeah. So it has to be, this is moving. Now, if you're in a space that they really want and they're really interested in your top priority space, they probably found you before I did. Right. Interesting. Okay. Then there's priorities two, three, four, five that I can bring to them that they're not actively trying to buy somebody that then it's going to be gone. So they'll move it up in priority just because of scarcity value because it could be gone to another buyer. Yeah. Yeah. And they found a company early because a, they see every, they have a lot more resources. They have a lot more people to like just scout and see what's happening. Right. Yeah. I mean, their workforce is engaging with companies every day. Yeah. Right. And in the end, Corp Dev does surface a lot, but it's generally the employees that are actually operating the business that see other interesting things and bring it to the attention of Corp Dev and say, we're working with these guys. They have a really smart solution here. Have you talked to these guys? And that's the way it comes up. That's an awesome point. This is, this is good, man. You're, you're dropping a a lot of knowledge here. Um, one of the other topics we were going to cover was employees versus investors. Sure. This is a difficult one, and it's yeah. a difficult one for, for code because the the smart buyers, as we just talked about, are really – they are buying the product and the technology, but they're also buying the, the founders and the employee base. And in these deals, there's a lot of the sophisticated buyers – are trying to allocate more and more dollars to the employees out of the purchase price and less and less to the investors. So I'm not going to use any names, but let's say I'm company B and I want to buy this company and I want to pay $100 million, okay? The best thing I can do is allocate like $10 million to the investors and then $90 million for glue to keep these employees around for the next four years where they earn out every year. That obviously doesn't work in a good company because the investors would never accept that. Um, And a lot of times the founders own a a big stake as well. That's like the extreme example. That's the extreme example. That's what they'd like to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for a good company where there's uh, real interest from other people, I am seeing like 20 to 25 to 30% of the purchase price going to employ glue to keep them going in in the future. And to give some context, it used to be like you just bought the company and then you would sign up the management team for like an options package after the deal be nowhere near that. Right. It would, it would be minimal, you know, no one does that anymore. Um, generally the first kind of four or five, six key employees that obviously had a lot of equity in the startup are having to revest around half of that over three to four years. Wow. So what they even if they've already vested, they're having to revest. Uh-huh. Basically sign up for the deal again. That's right. Wow. That's yeah. that's really so what so how do you handle that? Like what's how does that affect you guys? How does it affect the buyers? Sure. How does it affect the VCs? There's a couple of things. We are representing the company, but in probably like ninety percent of the cases, we've really formed a tight bomb bond with the management team. Yeah. But you have to be very careful because the management team now is pitted a little bit against the investors. Uh, Now, what I would say about most of these founders, uh, they're good people and they care about their investors. They care about the guy that gave them their first two million or five or ten million. So they're not doing anything untoward and saying, hey, I want this to go to the employees. Mm -hmm. But the buyer is saying specifically, this is what I want. And so they're stuck in the middle, and we're stuck in the middle a little bit. Yeah. Uh, our job and duty is to the overall company. Yeah. And, and you so have a reoccurring that. relationship with the investors, That's too. right. You care about that, them as well. That's you where most of our deals come from, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's just a tricky thing where you have to be seen as someone that's 
doing the right thing for the company. And most founders are doing the right thing too. They're yeah. not trying to cut side deals with the company to get more for themselves. Um, in terms of the revesting and things, we let clients know before the offers come that that's going to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And they just have to understand that that is part of the game. The key there is to make sure it's time-based and not an earnout. Yeah. We in seven in seven years at Code, I've never signed up my company to an earnout. Can you talk about what an earnout is? And sure. The difference. Yeah. yeah. So the difference is uh, an earnout could be, listen, you're going to put this fifty million aside for these employees, and over the next four years, you need to reach a certain level of revenue or profitability or a certain product milestone, and if you do that, then you get this payment. Yeah. That's not what I'm talking about, and no one should sign up for those because earnouts are very hard to collect. Uh, because once they own you, then they want you to do what their mission is, which could be in direct conflict with the earnout. Yeah, they might uh, move your whole team to another division, and exactly. there's no way you can ever hit that earnout. Right. Like, I I totally agree. Like right. never sign up for an earnout. What we're talking about is taking that fifty and saying, employee A, you're ten million of that. Over the next uh, four years, you're going to get two and a half million a year as long as you're employed. And oh, by the way, if we fire you without cause, you accelerate and get that yeah. money. Yeah. So it's really just about sticking around for those mm-hmm. four years. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. How do you navigate that kind of uh, request from the buyer to do the twenty percent to the to the team? Out of the purchase price, like what do you? What's what are the steps there? Well, you know what you do is you you obviously show the term sheet to the entire board and you talk yeah. about it as a board, yeah. and then you get everybody's input on what they want to go back mm-hmm. uh, with. So you can't do it in a vacuum just with the founder or just with the investors. You have to bring everybody together in one room and everybody just you know here's what we think. Let, let's it fly. And you know there's a there's a trade off. Um, when you go back to those people, you know that for certain companies, getting money to the employees are really important. So if you want to ask for more money in places, you know where you can ask for that. So maybe we feel like we've tapped them out on the overall price, but maybe we think there's a few more they'd give to the employees, mm. and therefore we can adjust something else that's going to the investors. So you can do things like that, but in general, it's just being honest with everybody. This is where they're at. This yeah. is important to them. How hard do you want me to push to move dollars back from the employees to the investors? Or how hard do you want me to add to bucket A or bucket B? Yeah. Are you seeing that? Because the, the late stage market has been pretty hot for the last three or four years. And a lot of startups are raising like big big rounds of big valuations. And I my hypothesis would be this is coming into play for that reason too. And that maybe like the last round of investors are not in the money in this yep. acquisition or something like that. How do you navigate that situation where there's like a liquidation preference or the valuation is just too high? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So in those situations, in general, you um, are stuck with a situation where the investors are going to have to give back something to the employees to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So part of the conversation we've been talking about is how important the employees are and the founders. So they have a lot of leverage in this process. Mm -hmm. And what happens is if you have a company that's kind of under a preference and somebody wants to do the deal, then the investors are going to have to get together and say, hey, we need to carve out out of our stake because our lick preference is going to take the whole purchase price. Yeah, we have yeah. to carve something out of our stake to give to the employees. Otherwise, there is no deal Yeah, because the employees won't go, the, won't yeah. sign up to it, and then the, therefore it won't be bought. Yeah. How do you, how do you bring that to kind of uh, ahead? Because I've seen a lot of companies over the years that just – Everyone talks about it. Everyone knows that it needs to happen, but right. no one wants to make the first step. Like, No one does anything until there's an offer. Yeah. Now, 
in some cases where you have a company that you're saying, hey, we want you to go out and sell the company because we're not going to be able to raise more money, they'll put a package in place for management, a management carve-out. It's, yeah. it's very customary. We're generally not involved in that conversation. Yeah. The investors get together with the CEO and others and say, what about this number? What about this number? And those and might not be your target carve-out. clients anyways. That, yeah, they're, they're, I mean, those are tough usually, situations. Yeah. Um, but there are many companies that are good companies, um, and this is another thing about a, a little more about raising money rather than M&A, is they try to top-tick price, and they take bad structure for that. And I think can, for you— Can you explain you, that? Because yeah, that's an awesome sure. point. Yeah. For your clientele, you know, somebody could come to you and say, I'll give you $10 million at a 20 pre, right? And I'm just going to use that as an yeah. example. Um, clean. It's so a one X lick reference. There's sold no thirty three percent of the company right. in this round. Yeah, yeah. But it's clean. Yeah. When, when when you go to sell the company, I get the hire of my equity ownership or one X. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, there is no coupon on it, and there's no other kind of big bells and whistles. Yeah. It's pretty clean. Okay. Then my I have another client. The same client gets an offer from somebody that says I'll put in ten million at a forty pre. But I want a two and a half X on my lick preference and I want a guaranteed 8% coupon return over the life of the investment. And the founders looking at it and going, well, I really like the 50 and my company's always going to go up. So that lick preference is never going to come into play. And let's, let's go that route. Yeah. And that's fine as long as the company keeps going up to the yeah. moon. But at some point, those lick preferences catch up with you. The other thing is the next round, whatever you gave to the last round, they want it. Totally. So they're like, wait. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Like, they're going to see it and they're going to want it too. So it makes it harder to do another round. And then the lick preference really starts to add up until it becomes kind of unmanageable. Yeah. And therefore, the common gets sunk down to almost nothing. And that's hard for retention and yeah. recruiting, etc. It also is bad for like the Series A investor, the first money in, right. because they're getting squashed like how common is getting squashed. And yep. most of the people who like to do those kind of we call them like highly structured term sheets, mm-hmm. are usually like hedge funds or people who are not really that incentivized to be a good actor in the right. VC ecosystem. They're usually like a hedge fund or some other institution that's like thinks they figured this out and is going to do this. And what they end up doing is they end up getting kind of in the not so greatest deals. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling cycle because then they need to enforce those preferences so that they can get their money back or make a little bit of money and the system turns negative kind of faster. It's like this feedback system that's really kind of scary to get involved in. No, you, you're right. And it's it's hard to get away from it once you accept that yeah. first deal like that. Um, I would say it, it sometimes is the investor, but it's also sometimes the founder. And, oh, totally. And one totally. of the things about um, the founders, their biggest issue is recruiting good talent. So if you can have a press release that you had a significant up round that leads to a lot more resumes, a lot more inbounds, and a lot yeah. better hiring. And so sometimes people try to stretch those terms to get that headline yeah. price to recruit talent. So there's a reason for it. But I would tell you that every time you should just take a lower valuation, yeah. clean, clean and move on. Totally agree. I, let's, we should also be honest. There's a little bit of ego involved yes. on the founder. It's not just they're trying to recruit better. It's right. like they want to go to a cocktail party and talk <laughs> about, you know, like as everyone would. But yes. it's just... Be smart about it. Take the more conservative route. It pays off in the end. Um, the, the final kind of topic we were going to talk about was how you guys work with both the, the companies and the VCs to make sure that the investor group is doing the right thing for the, for the company. And yeah. we talked about that a little bit, but there's some 
it's it's kind of a tricky situation. Yeah, almost every company we work with has a board filled with VC investors. And the issue there is they come in at different times and they also sometimes have different goals and objectives than the management team. And when you start to see offers come in or tricky situations come into the company, how people act, are they board members and therefore acting on behalf of all shareholders, all employees, all stakeholders, or are they an investor and they're worried about what they're going to get for the Series A or the Series B or the Series C for their LPs? And in fairness to them, it's very difficult because the reason why LPs invested in them was to get a return. Those are their customers, right? They made an investment here, but they're sitting on the board. And so I think it's very difficult to separate in certain meetings for people Uh, Should I be doing this for the company or should I be doing this for my investment? And I will tell you, probably 30% of the time, those are in conflict. Yeah, uh, it just happens. Yeah, we were talking about those like structured term sheets. One one temptation for that is maybe a venture capital fund's outraising their next fund right now, and so it would look a lot better on paper if the company had a hundred million dollar valuation, even if it was highly structured versus a $50 million valuation. They look like they're two times smarter and have two times the return on paper. Right. And so they may be willing to kind of take a highly structured term sheet in that scenario because they know it's going to make their fundraising for the next fund easier. So there's a lot of like, it's tough. Like I don't, I don't envy you and I don't envy right. the VCs actually because they know they need to do the right thing for the company, but they also have these kind of near-term pressures to make their numbers look good, Right. Or, you know, dress things up, things like that. Yeah. I'm on a transaction right now that's a little difficult. And right now we have a board call and then there's a shareholder call right after. And so they're really doing a nice job of trying to separate their two wow, duties because the shareholders can vote whatever they want, regardless of what the board decides. Yeah. But they've realized it's tricky enough. And they, we do have one of these waterfall issues with yeah. preferences and a management carve out. And so they have a side meeting after every call to try to discuss and work through these issues. Um, I think the biggest piece of advice is to get good, independent people on your board early. And I know people don't want a large board, but you're going to want people that are really thinking just for the company and the strategic direction of the company and aren't thinking of it from an investor hat. Yeah, that's a great advice. And I've sat in a lot of board meetings and oftentimes those the independents they own a little bit of stock in the company but they're usually like a friend of the founders or they're a professor or they're an industry expert and they have a lot of experience usually and they can help guide the conversations they can also kind of take the emotion out of the conversation which is really underrated i've seen like board meetings where people almost going to fight and it's like crazy you wouldn't think that would ever happen but it does because these like dollar amounts get so big and having a strong independent can really help you navigate that. Completely agree. Yeah. Any other big topics? Like one of the things that you even coached us on is making sure that companies, you know, prep for that. They're not prepping like they're going to sell the company immediately, but like always have that mindset of being prepared to sell the company if that inbound comes in. Like how do you yeah. advise companies on how to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, the process is overwhelming. If you're grow, uh, you know, you have a fast growth company, you probably are spending all day just yeah. growing that business, just surviving. Right? Yeah, just yeah. surviving. And so the M and A or a raise gets thrown into your life, and now you got to worry about that and run your business. 
and it becomes just too much, which is, you know, obviously I think good, good advisors will be helpful. Um, but in the end, you always want to be prepared, especially on the legal and finance side. That is stuff that you don't think about every day. You don't care about. It's not top of mind while you're growing your business, but it's like the number two or three item on the due diligence. And it's those two topics take up probably 80% of the due diligence. The technology people can get there. Like you either have it or you don't, and Mm -hmm. the product people can understand whether you have it or not and how well it's protected. Uh, But in the end, all of the legal and financial stuff takes a really long time. And if you're not prepared for it, that can delay the transaction significantly. Yeah. yeah, having a good lawyer is worth its weight in gold. And sometimes people will say, kind of what you were saying earlier about how sometimes investment bankers get grief for their fee structure, but like a good lawyer may seem expensive, but they're actually very inexpensive. Th- those dollars you spend on having your legal framework set up correctly, having all the option paperwork done, stock purchase agreements done, it's so valuable. It also just projects like this professionalism to the buyer that they know you're they know that lawyer or investment banker or accountant would never let this company do something totally off the wall and make sure they're kind of tidied up and it really does help quite a bit it's it's amazing you're right i mean buying a company is about confidence it's first in kind of the founder management team and then it's in the product technology and then it's in everything else yeah i'm gonna buy your company i'm gonna integrate it into my company and I want to know you, that you have control of your company, totally. right? And that comes down to finance and accounting yeah. and legal in the end. Yeah. This has been a great podcast. You've, I feel like we need to do another one like in two weeks because there's so much that we didn't cover and it's so good. Uh, but, Will, maybe you can just tell everyone where they can find you and how to reach out to Code Advisors. Sure. Uh, will at CodeAdvisors.com is the easiest way. And I, I will say that at Code, we probably spend 60 to 70% of our time doing things for free for small companies. That's what we like to do. That's where we get our clientele from. So if you have questions about you know trying to get to the right person for business development in a big company, um, if you have questions about board members that you'd like to hire or anything else about uh, processes that we've run, um, I'm happy to take those calls or emails and I'll give you the best answers I can. Yeah. And I can personally vouch for not only Will, but co-advisors. Will's a class act. He's an amazing guy. I've known him. I can't even believe I'm going to say this, but I've known you for like 17 years, which is terrifying to me because I remember us being so young and handsome and carefree. Uh, but he's really incredible. He's a great investment banker. Um, so definitely look him up if you're thinking about selling your company or that offer he just gave is very generous. Like if you have questions or you maybe just need a little bit of advice, he's there. He's been wonderful doing that for Christian Consulting clients, and I know he'll do it for other people too. Thanks, Scott. I I feel the same about you guys and, and what you're building here and look forward to working with you in the future. Cool. All right, man. Thank you so much.